This week's podcast is sponsored by Destinations Career Academy, powered by K-12. Destinations serve school districts with flexible CTE solutions to get students future ready for a changing job market, providing career exploration, real-world experience, and certifications prep. Learn more at destinationsacademy.com school hyphen districts. That's destinationsacademy.com school hyphen districts. Hello and welcome to the EdSearch Podcast, a weekly look at the future of learning. My name is Tony Wan, the managing editor here at EdSearch. This week we welcome a special guest, an author who is prolific not just when it comes to writing best-selling novels, but also when it comes to starting education nonprofits. Bookworms may know him for his bestsellers like The Circle, Zaytun, and a heartbreaking work of staggering genius. In education, He's also the founder of Scholar Match, which helps underserved students go to college. And in San Francisco, he's perhaps best known as the guy who co-founded the Pirate Store, which actually is a storefront for his writing and tutoring center, 826 Valencia, a program that has been replicated in cities all around the world and where I once volunteered. If you haven't guessed it by now, I'm talking about Dave Eggers. Many of his works forecast issues that make future headlines. He wrote about the low salaries of America's teachers more than a decade ago, long before the recent teacher strikes sparked a national movement. And many of the themes in his fictional works, about the dangers of technology, surveillance, and erosion of privacy, are very much in the mainstream conversations today. I talked with Vegas recently to find out why he decided to put a pirate store in his tutoring center, and about his views on education and technology, including what he thinks of automated grading software and how tech impacts our daily lives. Um, welcome to the EdSearch Podcast. Uh, thank you. Good to be here. So, Dave, you are a prolific writer, having authored many novels, children's books, and stories for newspapers and magazines. Um, but I want to ask, have you considered writing about education or setting up one of your novels in a school environment? That's such a good question. I mean, we... We did do a book about teachers' lives and salaries called Teachers Have It Easy, Um, ironic title. Um, Nineveh Caligari, the co-founder of 826 Valencia, and I edited that with a teacher friend, uh, Daniel Molthrop. He was a teacher at the time, now he's a uh, nonprofit director. But um, we we thought that that was one way in, um, was to because once we were working with teachers, and Nineveh was also a longtime school teacher um, here in San Francisco, we were trying to point out to people what teachers' lives really were. We were trying to get past some of the uh, noise and some of the misconceptions and some of the outright myths, mistruths about um, teachers' lives, and then talk about how the low pay that so many teachers uh, live with um, creates a system where they're forced out uh, of their jobs because they can't afford to live in the cities in which they teach and um, and how this is you know key to so many of the issues that uh, plague uh, some of our bigger and especially urban uh, schools where you have this unbelievable turnover teachers coming into the profession, finding they can't support themselves in that profession, in their cities, and then leaving. 
And so that turnover is uh, uh, catastrophic for so many schools and the ability for teachers to reach mastery and, uh, and plan a live life for themselves in the profession. So long story short, that's, that's one book that we did. But otherwise, you know, for the most part, the work is about publishing student writing. And so now we've, I think we've published at least maybe 5,000 books in the last 18 years, whether it's a book produced in one day by students in a grade school that come into 826, or a longer form anthology of teen writing, for example. So um, we're all you know, really just about celebrating the student work and holding it to professional standards, bringing it to authentic outside audiences, and uh, making them feel like published authors, even if they're 11 years old. Oh, that's really interesting about the book about the teacher salaries. Um, is this a recent book? I kind of, no, I know that, about... that was a bit. So this was before the headlines with the teacher walkouts and the protests yeah, and all of that. Was, wow. I think we okay. published it um, 12 years ago. And then it, oh, led, wow. okay. it led to a, a movie called American Teacher that followed the lives of four teachers around the country and it was narrated by Matt Damon whose mom was a teacher and um, and that that documentary I think is really powerful and it features most uh, a lot of the same voices uh, in the book the book is mostly oral histories and um, so the one or the other I hope uh, people will they're still both out there I think American teacher you can see it on streaming services and uh, I hope uh, people will take a look because I think no matter what you do think you know, uh, and I know the teachers know all of these things and live in this world, I think there's still a lot to, uh, uh, a lot of lesser known truths and I think that both books are, I think, very moving. Sometimes they make you very mad um, uh, about some of the uh, lack of support the teachers live with but at the same time they're all very inspiring to see these educators at work and I think you come away just wanting uh, no matter how it happens we've got to find a way to keep these great teachers in the profession and and uh, and uh, avoid forcing them out of the profession and that's you know so many of the very best teachers that I've known over the years have quit um, especially here in San Francisco where the cost of living is so exceedingly high. Unless you're willing to live with a few roommates or you have a trust fund or uh, a millionaire spouse, uh, it's really hard to live on a teacher's salary uh, with the rents the way they are here in San Francisco. I want to come back to those points uh, just in a little bit, um, but I want to talk about um, one of this um, this more recent book, which is about one of your most well-known nonprofit education efforts. Um, it's called Unnecessarily Beautiful Spaces for Young Minds on Fire. Um, what's it about, and why that title, Unnecessarily Beautiful? Well, 826 Valencia is a writing and tutoring center here in the Mission District of San Francisco, and we, Nineveh Caligari and I, uh, built it back in 2002 as a drop-in writing center and tutoring center for kids in the neighborhood. So it was really just designed to be a, a place to get extra help after school. But the building that we rented at that address, 826 Valencia, was zoned for retail. So the landlord said, you've got to sell something. You've got to have a storefront retail space. So 
just to satisfy that obligation and maybe give ourselves a laugh, we created a pirate uh, supply store in the front. It sells actual working supplies for, uh, you know, uh, buccaneers. And so it was, um, but what happened was students would walk through the pirate supply store that's really decorated very elaborately with flags and uh, peg legs and eye patches and everything that you would need, doubloons and um, uh, it's very silly but very involved and I mean, it really looks like uh, the, you know, the, the hull of an, of an old ship. And, um, but because these kids were coming in for extra help, they didn't feel stigmatized going through the pirate store to the tutoring center in the back of the space. They felt alive and awake and uh, amused and they thought it was kind of a welcoming space as opposed to a stigmatizing center that I think sometimes a tutoring center, an after-school center might feel uh, clinical or um, somehow punitive or and then of course a lot of education design you know it, it, I, when I grew up a lot of the schools were cinder blocks and uh, very sometimes the same architects that would design prisons were designing schools that was a big thing in the 70s and so we have a very uh, sometimes brutalist architectural uh, mentality that goes into school design um, and what we found is that kids really respond to a rich, tactile environment that isn't just cement and uh, uh, plywood. But what if you made it kind of not just beautiful, but delicate and silly and um, sometimes uh, bizarre and witty and, um, and colorful and rich with fabrics and copper and woods and things like that, um, we find students really respond to that. I remember putting, we, were, we, we decorated a room in one of the schools here in San Francisco and we put a lot of very delicate sort of linens and um, sort of gauzy fabrics that kind of let in the light from the windows but, but uh, created a little bit of privacy and little different sort of private spaces in the room. And the kids were so struck by the delicacy and the beauty of, the, of that environment, you know, and sort of velvet cushions and oriental rugs. And, um, you know, it was like it, it created something very different than their everyday uh, atmosphere. And so I think that students and humans in general respond to that kind of beauty and that kind of what we call unnecessarily beautiful environments. And so 826 Valencia led to similar spaces in New York, 826 New York, 826 LA, centers around the country that are also have very elaborate <clears throat> and goofy and provocative, you know, and creative designs. And then that led to centers that sort of were based on our model and our philosophy all over the world, from Austria, Australia, Dublin, London, uh, Buenos Aires, um, all over the place. Um, they would take this, these ideas and create their own beautiful environments, storefronts or not, or maybe within a school or a library. And so we collected all of these spaces, photographed them, 
and sort of ask questions of their founders about how you got this done, why, and how the students respond. Yeah, I remember still very vividly walking into the pirate store. The first time I worked, walked into the pirate store in Valencia and first wondering, why the heck is there a pirate shop in yeah. San Francisco? And, and secondly, the trap, the net trap. I don't know if it's still there. Oh, I don't yeah. want to bring a surprise. <laughs> but well, uh, you know, know, I still laugh when I, when I still uh, see people uh, fall for that. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell your listeners that when you walk in and you're at the front counter, you're standing under a, a trap door and there's one that drops a net on you in another part of the store and the main one drops a bunch of mop heads like the uh, sort of the squishy old cloth mop heads um, that have been separated from their poles and so just like five mops will mop heads will drop on your head and it's very shocking of course it's totally harmless but um, the kids get to pull the rope if they want to and drop the mop heads on their parents or teachers. There's a lot of goofy stuff like that that's all very low-tech. It's all wood and brass and stuff, but a lot of things to explore. There's dozens of drawers. There's trap doors on the, on the floor. There's a big uh, vat that you can dig for treasure and sand. And um, I wanted it to be very lo-fi. Uh, no concentration on screens, be very sort of much a tactile break from the digital lives that so many kids lead now. And I wanted it to be calm. After the break, Edgar shares his thoughts on the growing adoption and use of technology in schools. This week's episode is brought to you by Destinations Career Academy, powered by K-12, a provider of online courses, learning management systems, and curricula. I asked Mike Dardaris, Senior Director of Career Readiness Education at K-12, why project-based learning is key to proper career and technical education. You know, now with the internet, content is important, but it's accessible by, to anybody with a cell phone or, or an internet connection, right? So now it's, it's not necessarily about content specific, it's about process and the process of learning and the process of accessing and sifting out what is not good information and what's quality information and, and project-based learning is about that and then having a public display of knowledge at the end so whether it's a pitch whether it's a gallery walk where you have business partners walk through looking at your different ideas whether it's a presentation in addition to the content knowledge you also have the presentation skills that have to go along with that which in business like i'm doing right now with you right it's very important to be able to have a conversation with two professionals and talk about things you love and do it in an articulate way we haven't always done that in education thanks again to destinations career academy and k-12 for their support now back to the episode one of the trends that we cover at Surge and which you may have seen is the adoption of new technologies in schools. So these aren't the Commodores, right? These are um, brand new Chromebooks and iPads. Um, I'm curious for your take on the role of technology in education as far as being able to support the kind of creative anarchy spirit that places like the 826 and other uh, writing centers tries to instill. Yeah, you know, we, we um, the centers all have laptops. Um, interesting, they, they were all donated in all of our nonprofits. They were donated by various tech companies um, very generously. And so they get used, especially on with the older kids when they do their composing, their essay writing before it gets goes to press. With the younger kids, 
I have a pretty firm belief that um, a third grader doesn't need to be doing their uh, math on computers. I mean, I, I have, uh, I think, sometimes, um, uh, um, I don't know, you know, uh, beliefs that are different, I think, than some here, especially in San Francisco. Um, but I think that kids are on screen so much, whether they gaming or using phones or watching movies, that I really do think we have got to think of, we have to carve out time when they're not required to be on screens. And I think that schools are in such an interesting place right now where <clears throat> more and more uh, I see the kids having to do their homework on screens or to get their assignments, they're on laptops, or to do them, they have to be hooked up to Wi-Fi, which not all kids have at home. And um, so I, I find it very tough because we all know, I'm a parent and you know all, so many teachers are parents, and um, we all know how hard it is to get our kids off screens, and so, when, when more and more of the school day and the homework is done on screens, I think we're working at cross purposes because we lament, oh my gosh, they're on screens all day and you can't get them off and they're always on their phone and then we require them to do their homework on a screen, which I think is really kind of counterintuitive and maybe working against our larger goals, which is to make sure that they have an attention span that allows them to read books and think deeply. And, and I see too often that the kids with, I mean, they, and I have heard stories from middle schoolers at how they get, even though the laptops in their schools have been, they can't type in, they can't access YouTube traditionally, but they've all figured out workarounds. So they know how to get on everything. Every social media platform, YouTube, everything else. And I had a 13-year-old tell me the other day that, I don't know, during some class, all but two kids were doing something else on their laptop while the teacher was uh, giving a lesson that she thought everybody was following, you know, on their laptops, but everybody had found a workaround and, and they were doing something else. I think it's really hard. And I think that there's a, I think the most successful classrooms find the best uses of the technology at certain for certain lessons but they it's not an automatic go-to for everything i don't think that we have to channel every aspect of our lives or the school day through a screen i think we've got to set boundaries and make choices uh now i know that at a26 and other um, education centers um, beyond tutoring there's um, you your 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 efforts involve um, teaching writing as well. Um, so sticking with this, uh, the theme of technology a little bit, um, you know, today with emojis and memes and TikToks and whatnot, uh, technology has given new ways for people and kids to communicate and, and to tell stories, right? But some say that these new media can come at the expense of writing and some even blame technology for making students poorer writers. Is that something that you see, or what would you say to that? Uh, I think um, I think it's very manageable, as long as um, we're mindful of the uh, 
the ways that, like for example, emojis and, you know, or autofill or autocorrect. I think that I see different new kinds of ticks and errors and writing styles emerging now when kids, uh, when with all, with the autofill and with autocorrect, it has diffused responsibility a bit in a weird way where they sometimes don't take uh, responsibility for their own spelling or grammar because they assume that the machine will tell them when it's uh, uh, not right and then they will have to, uh, they'll respond to the machine. Um, as opposed to knowing, you know, uh, the rules and, uh, and, and having, uh, uh, taking responsibility for spelling things correctly and, and uh, getting the grammar correct on, on your own. I think, but again, I think that's a pretty minor part of it. Um, in all of our 18 years of A26 Valencia, we have not seen any drop off in writing quality, I can't say. Um, I think uh, this, but this is when we're working one-on-one -on -one with students, sometimes over many weeks on an essay or even months on a longer piece, um, and we're giving them individualized attention. I think teachers might have more nuance or more sort of uh, anecdotal evidence or very more, more recent um, reports from the front, but I sort of have such faith in kids being able to uh, adapt, and I think that if teachers and parents and volunteers are all sort of paying attention to a student's writing, um, they will always come through and create incredible work. Um, but I do think, again, um, I like to see kids handwriting as long as they can, learning cursive. The speed of thought is the speed of handwriting. This has been a, you know, it's been going on for thousands of years. The way that kids write best when they're younger is with their hand, with a pencil in hand on a piece of paper. It just, it is the right connection of tool and uh, neural activity. It's like you're, there's a channel that's very natural, it's the right speed, and, um, and it creates a sense of self-editing discipline that I think you really need at that age. And so I like to see composition done you know, manually, as long as you can. I still write, you know, a lot longhand because it's, it helps me think correctly, it helps me think clearly, um, uh, it, it organizes my thoughts in a way. Um, and so I think that, again, we have to remember the human part of it. Um, I think that we have to not over rely on algorithms to tell us what the English language is, you know, or whatever language is. I think that we are on the verge right now where we might be heading toward over reliance on machines that actually cannot parse sentences, their meanings, that is. There's a very scary development going on right now that a lot of standardized tests, the writing portion, that, in, that is supposed to determine whether or not a student is a competent writer, uh, a three or five paragraph essay, a lot of these are being graded by algorithms. I don't know if you've seen this, but there are companies that you know, purportedly 
you know, that they sell software that's, you know, that judges student writing on whether it's a scale of one to five, one to six, whatever. <clears throat> and it's a, a ludicrous proposition because even the software companies tell you, and it's on their front page of their website that says these algorithms cannot read. They can't tell meaning. They, they don't know um, what is a logical sentence or isn't, what is pretty language and isn't, what is efficient, um, you know. Well, they uh, describe it as uh, artificial intelligence or machine learning where they yeah. say they're basically trained on, you know, hundreds of thousands of past papers yeah. to train their model to detect uh, patterns. Um, yeah. and then make some, you know, make some assessment on whether something is, is good or bad. Yeah. It sounds like and, a nightmare to you. Well, well, it's a nightmare for the, for the species, for sure. I mean, we, whenever, because the, the kids, uh, writing is not made for machines. It's made for humans. And so you can't have a machine judge whether somebody is a good dancer or a good painter, or whether a poem is a beautiful poem, it, it, it will never be done. There is no way it, it can be programmed, nor should we undertake the project of even trying. It's like, why, why, what kind of lunacy leads us to think that something, that, that something like that should be undertaken? It's not the job of a machine to judge a 12-year-old's writing ability. It, and it never will be. It'll never be done. It's a scandal. And it, and it shows so little regard for that student's work, their, that student's um, uh, education, their soul, their artistry, what's inside them, if we're willing to give it to a machine to judge. It just is throwing that person's uh, education away. And so we have got to have respect for ourselves as a species, you know, to say human writing is worth having humans judge it. And there will never be a machine that can read the way that we can read and to know meaning the way that we know meaning. And there's no point in trying to create uh, or, or, you know, undertaking the folly of trying to get a machine to do what only a human can do. There are certain things we just don't need machines to do, so why undertake it? We're not gonna have machines paint um, Renaissance paintings nor judge them. We're not gonna have machines um, starring in uh, Swan Lake or judge the work of a ballet company performing Swan Lake. And, and I think that that's fine. I think that we have got to just every so often have some sanity checks and some boundaries and say, okay, well, this is one thing we don't have to have a machine do. And, um, and we'll leave that alone and we'll leave that to the humans. You know, it makes me think, I mean, just, just like the, the book you wrote about a dozen years ago kind of, um, you know, maybe forecasted the issues we uh, we recently saw with the teachers um walkouts over salaries and their working conditions i you know maybe in a similar and maybe tragic or uh, concerning vein i sense that some of the themes that you shared in some of your um 
works like 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 the circle, right? Um, some of those themes we're seeing uh, emerge in technology and even in education technology as well, with issues like surveillance and and privacy and kind of rewarding people in a game gamified system of points. And so, yeah, how do you? I don't. I don't know. How do how do we like kind of you know push back against that? Um, well, I, you know what's funny? I mean, I, you know, I use a laptop every day. I, uh, I send emails. I, um, I use Photoshop and ha- always have. I mean, there's so many tools that I've used. I had the first Apple computer when it came out. So I was an early adopter and, um, back then. And I think that, but, you know, I think increasingly there's, there's less choice about when you use technology and when you don't. And every year it becomes a little bit harder to do fundamental things without screens, without phones, without Wi-Fi. And I think that that's um, really unfortunate. And I think it's exclusionary and I think it's, uh, uh, and it deprives deprives us of a necessary diversity of human experience on a given day, you know? Um, it deprives us of the ability to stop, to, to slow down, to, to uh, disconnect, to contemplate, to meditate, all of these things. And I think uh, why it has to be, I think that there is a mentality that's sort of overtaken humanity, which is really, I think, very odd for me, and I didn't see it coming at all. And I've been in San Francisco 25 eight years, um, that everything has to, you know, everything is either being examined for how we might digitize it, or it already has been digitized. It's really just a matter of what is next. Like any object, whether it's a ceiling fan, a piece of chalk, a house plant, (laughs) a uh, classroom, everything is just in line for how do we mediate this through digital tools. And that is very strange to think about and to think about like, well, wait, why, why aren't we setting aside zones of life to be organic and to be digital, you know, undigital and free of that, just like we would set aside national parks to be free of development. And um, it is really weird, but I don't see I don't see quite as much pushback as I would expect. And I think um, just in the last five years, the rate of acceleration of the digitization of the classrooms has been very alarming to me. And, um, and, and I think that it's going to come at, at, at great expense um, eventually when you see students growing up uh, who are being permitted very little time uh, away from digital devices. Well, it seems like then the centers that you're creating and um, that have been create, uh, created in, uh, based on the model is creating some kind of refuge or, 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 or just temporary relief or solace from this, yeah. from this world. Refuge and haven. I mean, you know what's funny is that when one of our centers here in San Francisco is in the Tenderloin District, and there they do a lot of podcasting workshops. And that requires um, engagement with laptops and then later recording in little studios that Dolby set up for us. And um, that's a really nice blending of the technology 
with a lot of human contact and listening and uh, and celebrating the raw human voice, you know, of these kids as, as young as six and ten. Um, so, but yeah, generally speaking, these are refuges that um, are havens for quiet creativity, for analog um, creation, for human-to-human contact, um, a place to be weird, a place to get away from testing and filling in Scantron forms, uh, uh, a little bit of a throwback in terms of celebration of the paper book, the paper zine, the chapbook, the poetry journal, the magazine like the one you worked on with students called Slick, you know. Um, where, and you know what's funny is that the more kids' lives are digitized, the more they revel in being published in paper form because it's a little bit exotic if you're 11 and you're growing up and swimming in digital waters to, to have your work made permanent in a paper book that you can hold and, and flip through and put on a shelf or it's in there and sometimes in your local library or uh, we have our books that the students have written and that's very, that's a little bit more rare and um, kind of a, uh, exalted than you know having their work uh, available on a phone because that to them is just everyday uh, run-of-the-mill kinds of uh, access but if you put it in a book it it, 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 it it puts it on a new level a different kind of pedestal and so it's interesting now how uh, how things have changed you know a simple paper book is considered a a great honor, um, whereas to have your work sort of available on a screen is uh, is uh, rudimentary. Great, Dave. Well, thank you so much for your time, uh, for chatting about uh, a little bit more about your work and um, kind of sharing your, your thoughts more broadly around education and writing and the role of technology and, um, you know, how, how we can, um, you know, find some glimmer of hope against this tide that I think we're kind of immersed in, especially here in the Bay Area. I uh, want to thank you very much. Well, I appreciate it. It's great to talk to you. hope we see you back uh, in the Pirate Store someday. I'm Tony Wan, and this has been the Ed Search Podcast. Each week, we feature real conversations like this one. So please subscribe on Spotify or iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. This episode was edited and produced by my colleague, Jeff Young. We'll be back next week with more on the future of education. Till then. And instead of the usual piano music, we'll go out with more royalty-free pirate music in honor of the Pirate Store at 826 Valencia.